Let me first start out by welcoming you to this week's message from God's Word. As we have a chance, in fact, if you have your Bibles, I will invite you to go on ahead and turn with me to the book of Psalms. Uh, For this week, we're going to have a chance to be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 73. And as you're turning there, I just want to express just how much of a joy and, quite frankly, a privilege it's been to be able to, week in and week out, serve you in, in this way. And that's the right word. I really do consider this a privilege um, to be able to serve the wider body of Christ and our co- church community in this particular way. And I hope you've been encouraged and helped as we've had a chance to spend a little bit of time each week in God's Word, especially during these, these uncertain times. If you have had a chance by now to turn to Psalm 73, the book of Psalms, um, we're going to have a chance to, to appreciate the Psalms all over again. I hope you have an opportunity to regularly have a diet where you find yourself in the Psalms, in God's Word, but especially the Psalms. The reason why I say that is because the Psalms are unique and special and near to the heart of God's people, not just now, but all throughout the church's history, in, in fact, even all throughout Judaism, because it's, it's in the Old Testament. And the reason why it's managed to always capture the heart of God's people is because anybody who's acquainted with all 150 Psalms will quickly realize how well, how thoroughly the Psalms capture the entirety, the whole spectrum of the human range of experiences. And so if you're, if you're happy and elated and everything is going well for you and you have cause to celebrate, there are Psalms for that. If you're down and out and you feel like just ending it and you're not too sure why on earth you're, you're still here, there are Psalms for that. If, if you feel outrage or fear or uncertainty or confusion or sadness or pain, there are Psalms for that. Uh, if, if you need a psalm that can capture your heart because you're repentant and you're wanting to come back to God and you're wanting to capture what that experience is like, returning back to God and restoring a relationship back together with Him, there are psalms for that. No matter where you may be in any season of your life, there's a psalm for you and for me. And today we're going to have a chance to zero in on one particular psalm that also captures an experience that's very close um, to you and and to me. And you'll have a chance to see by the time we're we're done. Psalm 73. I titled uh, this message, Comparison is the Thief of Joy. Comparison is the Thief of Joy. Now, unlike other psalms that you and I are familiar with um, that are typically attributed to David, most a lot of people I've found actually think all of the psalms are attributed to David. Um, but there are a number of psalms. Some we have attributed to, to Moses, but there are a number that we have attributed to another choir singer, music director, song worship leader, whose name is Asaph. And the person who wrote this particular psalm is, is Asaph. And Asaph was someone from what we gather from the scriptures, who was a man who represented God, who lived for God, who served God, and who was a leader in his day, one that people looked up to, one that people esteemed and valued. And he was right there along with David. And he was someone who who played a significant role, whose hand God was on, who God used in his day 
But interestingly, Psalm 73 is a unique psalm in that it captures not so much the strength of this particular leader, but his weaknesses. And we're, we're going to have a chance to, to see that in, in, in a moment here. And Asaph is going to have the opportunity as a leader, as a man of God, to walk us and to narrate for us what was his personal journey. I don't know about you, but I love biographies. And I love the fact that I get a chance to put my feet in the shoes of another person who I highly esteemed. And it's not that I don't find all of that in the biography, but I also get a chance to put that person in a more realistic context. And that helps me because sometimes we can, we all got our heroes. And if we're too removed from their lives as they actually are, we can have too much of a, of a high estimation of them that begins to get away from reality, the, the kind of reality that their spouses or their children or, or those people who lived with them would have known. And I'm thankful for Asaph because he's bold enough. I mean, this is in the Bible, Scripture. Um, he's bold enough to be able to recount for us, no matter at what cost it may come to him, as far as how we would perceive him, to be able to share with us this experience of his that no doubt resulted in good, but not in the beginning. And so let's open up in verse 1, if we could. Psalm 73 and verse 1, where Asaph begins by saying, truly, God is good. Let's stop right there. Truly, God is good. One of the attributes that is repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament, and especially throughout the book of the Psalms, is the goodness of God the goodness of God. As Christians, I know we, we love to say God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But sometimes that can turn quickly into trite Christianese and cliche to where we just know what to say. I'm afraid in the church at different points, one of the things that we've been guilty of is associating God's goodness with things and stuff that may come from his hand. And so we have no problem with believing that God is good so long as our life is going as planned. But here, Asaph is simply stating the fact that God is good, period. <laughs> God is good to Israel. And that is the way that it should be. For the Christian, one of the things that should be true to all of us that we all have in common is, is that God doesn't need to be good or God isn't good simply because of what he gives me or where my life presently is. What explains why God is good is found in himself. God is good, period. If we don't see God's goodness tied to who he is, what ends up happening is we run the risk of associating God's goodness with the things that we expect to come from God. So, and God ends up being demoted from who he is to a butler, a heavenly butler, or a genie that we, we rub and we pray, give me this, and it's supposed to come out of the bottle and grant us our wish. But now we're no longer talking about the God as we see him in the scriptures. God's never had to to be good only if he gave us the life that we demand. God's good in and of himself. And one of the ways that we move forward in our Christian life and experience true joy, 
true happiness and a life that God wants from us is when we begin to experience the goodness of God independent of what my circumstance may be looking like at the time. Now, I understand it's not to say that God doesn't give us good things. Uh, This is not to say that God doesn't grant his children good things. I can give you a few examples just to point that out. Jesus said, if your fathers, being evil, know how to give you good gifts when you ask, how much more who? Your heavenly father. James in chapter 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above our father of lights. So there we already understand that that God is a giver, all right? I want you to know that. I don't, want you, I don't want in any way to discount the fact that God is a giver. God blesses. God loves to, to be generous toward, toward his children. The Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives what? Generously. God's a generous giver. I want you to know that. Yet, at the same time, we recognize that as far as you and I are concerned, we never made this relationship between us and God about what's, what's in his hand, right? I don't want God. I'm not in a relationship with God simply for what I can get out of his hand. I'm in a relationship with God for who he is. It's about him at the end of the day. And that's going to be important because the moment we slip from there, we're going to see a slip in a second. The moment we get away from there, we find ourselves in a whole lot of trouble. We find ourselves in a whole lot of trouble. And so I want you to capture this. I want you to understand that if you can build and begin a relationship with God where you're able to see God as good, no matter what your circumstance may look like, you are far ahead in your Christian walk. And we see this here. Asaph in verse two goes on and says, but as for me, Yes, God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now here, David is, um, Asaph, rather, is beginning to get a little vulnerable, isn't he? This is important. A lot of times, the only thing that our people, some of us who are leaders or ministers, the only side that our people see of us is our strengths. Um, if if we, we go off onto ministry uh, trips or we're involved in missions work or we have a chance to, to see God use us in any ways, a lot of times the only thing that people hear are, are the good reports, <laughs> the hundreds that came to Christ, right? The people that came back or the sort of impact that we were able to have that, that brings a good light upon us and upon, upon God. And we've, we, for some reason, are afraid that if we let people in, not just our successes, but also our failures, not just the times when things are going great, but even the times when, when things are shaky, that that's going to somehow hurt our witness. I'm sure Asaph could have thought the same thing. That if I were to disclose the, that I was nearly at the point of slipping, I don't know what this could do to people. But he was secure. Many leaders and many Christians are hesitant to want to share their struggles or their weaknesses or the things that they had to learn the hard way with others 
because of what they fear is going to happen in their relationship with others. But if I'm convinced that I'm ministering to people and I'm serving people, not so that I can draw a following, but so that Jesus can draw a following, it doesn't matter what they learn about me, good or bad. It doesn't matter what they discover about me that speaks highly of me or not. Because at the end of the day, if God is ultimately using it for good, it's about him, then it'll lead people to Jesus. I couldn't tell you how many times I went out on a limb to share with a brother or two struggles of mine, areas in which confusion existed as I was trying to walk with the Lord and discern his will. And we walk away from that and they say, you know what? I can't thank you enough for sharing that with me. I didn't think you struggled with that. I never thought that that was your issue. I thought that that could never be the case with you. But now that I know, it gives me hope. You see, now that we know that Asaph, man of God Asaph, is going through or had to go through what he did, it's like, okay, so there is hope for me. And I think that's important for us. When we look at Paul, we see that Paul thought that at one point, the answer to his prayer was supposed to be that his thorn in his side was supposed to be removed. He even prayed to God three times. What did God say? He answered, but he said, no, my grace is what? That's right, sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect where? In your strength? No, in your weakness. You see, Paul realized that when he was weak, then he was strong. Because it was at the point of his vulnerability. It's at the point where you and I most know how susceptible we are to our own shortcomings. That we're more open, more inclined to avail ourselves to the grace of God, the strength of God, the provision of God. For some reason, when I feel like I got it and I feel like I'm doing fine and there's nothing about my life that seems to indicate that I could fall at any time, I'm less prone and I'm less likely to want to look to God and depend on God. I'm sorry to say. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, he says, if any man thinks that he stand, take heed, lest he what? Lest he fall, right? Asaph is saying, look, I was about to fall. <laughs> I was nearly about to slip here. I almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Envy. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so Asaph is saying, look, I got to admit, here I am looking at my life and I'm trying to evaluate and put my life up against the wicked, those who are, who've rejected my God, those who've decided to live a whole nother way. And I see them doing fine. I see them moving along. I see them having the life that they've always wanted. And I'm looking at my life and something doesn't match up. Ever been there? What Asaph is trying to point to is injustice, right? We see injustice. And maybe your experience with injustice is right there in your home, domestically. Or perhaps your experience with injustice is in your past, during your childhood. Or maybe some of you, your experience with injustice has to do with what's happening on a national scale or a global scale with what you see in the world. In any case, if you've lived on this earth long enough, no matter who you are, we're all aware of injustice of one sort or another. 
And what I mean by that is the fact that life's unfair. Life is not fair. And we all have tasted this one way or another, whether we've personally experienced it or we've had to watch somebody else, sadly, experience it for themselves. And Asaph is witnessing this live in time. And he's trying to make sense out of this. He's tr- he's, he can't wrap his mind around the fact that there's a good God and there's all this injustice in the world. How can I reconcile a good God with injustice and evil and suffering in the world? And so it's leading this Asaph to this place where his commitment to God is beginning to wane as a result of his inability to reconcile these two realities. I want to believe that God is good, but I can't deny what I'm seeing either in my home or or in my world. How do you reconcile to the two? You see, in his mind, if God is good, then he could. If God could, he would. That's how the math worked in Asaph's mind. You see, in the ancient Near East, in the A&E, the thought was, the prevailing norm was that if you do good, you live righteously, the the quote-unquote little g gods will bless you, the gods will do good to you, the gods will give to you. And so there was this thought that if I, if I live right, if I, if I keep the straight path, then nothing but good should come to me. And there should be no reason why people who reject God should have any good come to them. It's the age old question. I mean, we could think of Job as soon as we think of Asaph, don't we? You see, in Job's case, the question was, how can bad things happen to righteous people? In Asaph's case, it's how can good things happen to unrighteous people? You see, in Job's case, in in the book of Job, Satan was confused. And he says, look, I kind of understand now why Job sees you as good. I get why he's worshiping you and he's serving you because of uh, the stuff that's come from your hand that he's enjoying. You take that away, you don't have the Job that you think you have. And God said, is that right? You see, the challenge was, and the question was, am I going to worship God and am I going to continue to see God as good even if I don't have everything in my life as planned? Or is my declaration of the goodness of God tied to all of the things that God is giving me? And Satan put a finger on that. And that's what we see here in Asaph's case. And Asaph is trying to figure out how to make sense out of this. You know, all throughout my years as a pastor and all throughout my years as a person who's been in the church, more people have walked away from God and have walked away from the church and from the faith because of their inability to reconcile a loving and a good God with injustice and suffering in the world. If they didn't walk away altogether from the church and from the faith, they've walked away in their hearts. So you may even have people in the church, but they've walked away in their hearts because they could not hold together a God that's good while at the same time seeking to make sense out of all that's going on in this world. You know, the word envy basically has to do with a heart attitude. It's 
It's, it's this heart attitude that cannot stand how somebody else can be something or be in possession of something that I feel entitled to. It's the heart attitude that additionally says that, and I am in the right to be in possession of it. That's envy. That's envy. It's a close cousin to jealousy and to covetousness. And Asaph, rather than being grateful to God for what he has and being thankful for his goodness and his kindness for those who've rejected him, he can't stand to see how their life could look the way that it does. And so what does he do? He begins to grow in this area of envy. You see, that comparison game is robbing him already of his joy. The moment I start basing my life and my happiness on what's going on with somebody else is the moment that I begin to not be able to enjoy all of the good things that God has given me and that God is blessing me with. And what God is saying through this chapter of 73, through the book of of Psalms, is, child of God, Christian, am I good enough? Is it good enough that, that you have me? Is it enough that I'm in your life? Are we the kind of Christians who who are prepared to believe that God is good insofar as, as long as I get this, as long as my life looks like this? Because if that's the case, we're on our way to following in the same path as we see Asaph here. What led Asaph to this place? Taking his eyes off of himself and his relationship with God and all that God was doing in his life and beginning to focus on that which was going on in other people's. And what do we see? In fact, he, he doesn't waste any time to, to go into it, even into, into depth. In verses 4 through 12, we basically see a description that Asaph gives us of what he witnessed in their lives. He goes on by saying, for they, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He's basically saying, look, I don't, I don't, I'm not even convinced they have problems. Everything seems to be going perfectly fine with them. In fact, outside of death, it almost seems like everything else is good. Verse 12 is a summary statement of verses 5 through 12. So if you look at verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their in their riches. You see, he's, he's talking about the fact that I see violence going before them. I see their mouths that just utter all sorts of foolishness. I see their lives and their plans with their lives going in places that God has nothing to do with. And I even see a fearlessness on their part, so much so that they say, is there even a God who, who knows or who even sees? And Asaph is looking at this and he's wondering to himself, how can this be? How can there be a God, but not just a God, a good God, with all of this injustice, with all of this evil, with all of this suffering, with all of these people who are rejecting God, living it up at the same time? You see, for Asaph, in his mind, it was, look, if you're wealthy, God's in approval of you. 
If you're poor, God's in disapproval of you. It was that simple, right? If, if you got it going in this world's terms, then God's favor is with you. If you don't, God's favor is not with you. And God's trying to point out, that's a lie. That's not the case. In the New Testament, in Luke's account of the Gospels, in chapter 6, Jesus tells this story of a rich man and a poor man, a rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus basically says, look, there were these two men here on this earth. One was wealthy and one had it going for himself. This other person was beggarly and this other person was down and out. And he basically fed off of and lived off of whatever scraps remained from this other man. Well, eventually they die. But here's the deal, okay? And this would have shocked Jesus's audience. Guess, you want to guess who made it to heaven and who didn't? It was the poor man who had it rough, unjust, while he was here on this earth, who ended up being comforted by being in Abraham's bosom. And it was the rich man who had it good in this world's terms, who ends up where? Not in Abraham's bosom, but in, in, in Hades. And he's crying out and he's hoping that there would be a way that somebody could deal with this situation. And it was fixed. And Jesus points out that even though their lives may, may look in this way, we're all aware of injustice in this world's terms when we look at injustice in light of eternity and in light of God's ultimate reckoning. The fact that God's going to put to right all that is sooner or later, we realize it's not that smart to actually evaluate and come to conclusions with what's right simply by looking at people's lives here and now. And we see that with that story. This is important because I got a question for you. Do you evaluate God's love for you, God's acceptance of you, God's approval of you on the basis of your economic status? or the successes of your education, or maybe your health, or perhaps how much money you may presently have in your bank account, or whether you're employed or, or unemployed, or in between jobs, or whether you've experienced a promotion or demotion. In other words, on what basis do you experience God's love for you, God's approval of you? Is it on the basis of these things? Or is it based upon something else? Because if it is, that's Asaph. That's Asaph. You see, Asaph brought that grid. He brought that standard, that way of being able to gauge things to his relationship with God and to what he was seeing around him. And he couldn't make sense out of what was going on. And he couldn't make sense out of like, how could... I be a Christian. How could I be a child of God and this taking place in my life? And so he says, look, these are the wicked. And in verse 13, interestingly, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. <laughs> See? Oh, great. That's what he's saying. It was all for no purpose. I'm the fool. Joke's on me. 
So why exactly am I a Christian again? <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's, I've, I've kept my nose clean. for no, I've, I've remained innocent. I've stayed out of trouble. I've tried to serve the Lord. Does it even pay to serve God is what he's asking. That question ever <laughs> land in your mind? <laughs> it did for Asaph. Maybe I can help you. Is it even worth it to come to church? Is it even worth it to serve God? Is it even worth it to get involved and volunteer? Is it even worth it to give of my gifts or my finances to the kingdom or the gospel or the work of God? Is it, is it even worth it to, to make disciples out of others? Is it even worth it to pour into those who are in need? Is it even worth it to serve the poor? Is it worth it to put the needs of others ahead of my own? Because Asaph is thinking, at the moment, I feel like I'm the fool. And Asaph is beginning to think something that maybe all of us at one point or another thought. And that is, I wonder what it would be like if uh, I wasn't a Christian. I wonder what it would be like if I just stayed the way I was. You know, back then when I, when I gave my life to Christ. I mean, yeah, it was bad, but, you know, it could have been... Uh, I'm almost reminded of Exodus 14. Remember the children of Israel? I mean, they weren't even out of Egypt long. <laughs> and already they're beginning to compare themselves to their present situation. And they're thinking, oh, those leeks. Oh, the melons, the garlic. Oh, the life back there. How about the cruel taskmaster? <laughs> How about the bondage you were in for over 400? How about the slavery? How about the back, the backbreaking labor on you? How about that? We got selective amnesia a lot of times, don't we? We got this selective memory that we like to apply to our lives. And when things begin to be questionable, and, and we're at a place in our Christian life where things don't quite make sense, it almost always seems more convenient to I wonder if I was a non-Christian who I would marry. I wonder if so-and-so was still single. I wonder if I could live my life. Boy, it would, be like, it would be nice to just buy a house like that, drive a car like that, live a life like that, travel like that, to make choices like that. You see, Asaph is beginning to toy with this idea, and it's not helping him at all. He says, all in vain. Just all that Bible reading, that church attendance and life groups, those prayer meetings, all of that time together, serving alongside God's people, total waste. Here I am investing in nothing when I'm looking at everybody I went to school with. Here I am on Facebook. I'm in my, my high school reunion closed Facebook group, and I'm seeing everybody else living it up. Everybody else is making something of themselves. I got nothing to post except my Bible verse, <laughs> right? I got nothing to show that would count in this world's terms. And I feel like, did I, did I just waste my life? Was, just, was there no point to giving my life to Jesus? Was I the fool? Should I just get out right now and, and go right back to the way life is? Because I don't see the difference that Jesus is making for me right now. I don't see it at all. 
at least not in the way, I mean, I'm looking at their life. How else am I supposed to look at it? If you ask me, it's all in vain, he says. It's no use, no point, no purpose. For Verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, Verse 15, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know what Asap is saying? He says, here I am. I was sitting in front of my computer. I typed this up exactly how I feel. I was in front of my phone, and I was going to kick publish on my Facebook post. But then just before I did, I said, you know what? If I do this, I'm going to really hurt a lot of Christians who are looking to me. He said, if I really told these Christians how I feel, if people really knew some of the ways I'm thinking right now and feeling right now, I'm afraid I would make some Christians stumble. I would actually stumble a couple of people. He says, I would have betrayed a whole lot of God's people. I'm so glad I didn't click send in that email. I'm so glad I didn't click publish and allow the whole world, allow this to be broadcasted. I just kept it to myself. If I would have spoken thus, he said, he kept it to himself. Maybe you've been there. A lot of people think that um, doubt is the opposite of faith. That's not true. And when they do, they're guilty. They feel guilty for having doubt in their Christian life. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith actually is certainty. (laughs) doubt can work together with faith. Yeah, there is this aspect of doubt that is unhealthy, no doubt. No pun intended. (laughs) Uh, James says in James chapter 1 that if any man doubts, he's like a what? A wave of the sea, driven and tossed about. Don't let that man think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. But there are a lot of God's people who doubted. Gideon doubted. Abraham and Sarah doubted. Moses doubted whether he could be used by God and lead mass number of people out of one country, one nation, into a whole nother promised land. A lot of God's people doubted. But you know what? In every one of those cases, God used their doubt. We're not celebrating the doubt, but I believe they were all the more firm and strong in their faith once God brought them out on the other end of that doubt because of it. And I believe a lot of times, one of the reasons why I found ministers, I used to talk with even people who were in Christian ministry who would look down upon other Christians who battled with doubt. And I would say, well, don't you ever doubt? And they would say, nah, nah, never. Not once, no. But you know what? Those same people are not in the ministry today. You see, doubt properly handled and worked through on the other end leads to a mature believer, a more solidified believer. Why do I say that? Because if you're on this side of your Christian life, if you will, dealing with your doubt as it relates to whatever with your faith, if you don't, if you're not guilty of that doubt, And if you allow God in to your experiences with doubt and help him shepherd you through, guess what? By the time you end up 
on this other end of that journey with God and your doubt, you're going to be all the more strong, stronger because the things you believe today as opposed to yesterday, you do so not by avoiding doubt, but precisely because you faced your doubt head on. And there are a lot of people, I'm afraid to say, who are in the church and who are with God today, not because they worked through their doubt, but because they've tried to all this time avoid their doubt. And those are the people that concern me the most because it's only a matter of time when we see them fall. So if you're somebody right now and you're dealing with doubt, I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel troubled. One of the ways in which you arrive at truth and you find the answers that you're, you need and that you're looking for and God ends up being sweeter to you and more of a treasure to you on the other end, is by allowing him to help you work through that doubt. And I'm thankful, even though it's sad to see Asaph in this place in his life, he's there and he's not in denial of it. And here he says, verse 16 and 17, this is the hinge. This is the turning point in the whole psalm. But, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, in other words, here I am trying to serve the Lord and trying to live for Him. And, and here all of these people are that have rejected God and that are doing just fine with their lives. And it looks like nothing is about to happen to them for it. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Ever been overwhelmed emotionally? Ever felt like at the point of burning out, just reading Twitter, watching YouTube videos and looking at your own life and just seeing so much wrong, so much wickedness, so much injustice going on in the world. And it's like, how do I get involved and do something? Where do I start? Am I going to put a dent even in this? Is there any use? How do I know that what I'm doing is actually purposeful and getting anywhere? And I know a lot of people are like, man, you know what? It's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming when you try to wrap your mind around just how much suffering and how much injustice is around. That's where he's at. He's like, it's just a wearisome task. When I try to try to put my life up against all of this, when I try to reconcile the goodness of God with all of the suffering, not just in my own life, but all the suffering going on in the world, it's like, it was too wearisome. People try to come alongside me like Job's comforters and be a good friend and say, you know what, uh, uh, Asaph, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called, you know, God. And they try to quote. He's like, look, that's not helping me right now. That's not what I need. And here he says, it's a wearisome task. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see what he's saying? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. All of this was, was wearisome. All of this was too much until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, he's not saying uh, until I went into the church building, all right? <laughs> until I went into the temple, or though that is true. But the sanctuary represents, the building represents the presence of God and the people of God where the word of God is opened and proclaimed. You see, what Asaph is saying is, 
I went into this mess thinking the only way I can get out is by God answering every one of my questions. Only to discover that sometimes the best thing that I need is not an answer to my questions. It's God's presence. It's God's presence. Some problems, some enigmas end up getting solved this way. On my knees. Not by getting answers to every single one of my questions. Sometimes the way God wants to answer, and he does want to answer our questions, he does want to answer our cries and, our, and address our confusion. And he does want to help us reconcile his goodness with what's going on in the world. But the way he does it is by you and me getting on our knees. So when he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, what he's saying is, until I got on my knees, until I went into the presence of God, until I said, you know what? I'm going to try something for a change. I'm going to stop insisting that God has to answer every single one of my questions the way I say he has to. And I'm going to start letting God be God. That's what he's saying. I'm going to start letting God be God. When you go into the sanctuary, that's God's space. Remember what God said to Moses when he approached the burning bush. Behold, you are on holy ground. And he took his sandals off. Asaph is on holy ground. You remember Job? He had a lot of questions for God, didn't he? He's like, God, come on. What's going on here? I thought I was righteous. I thought I was serving you. How could this be? And then God said, hold on one second here. <laughs> I, got, I got some questions for you. And what did, what did Job do? He put his hand over his mouth. And he realized, <laughs> I made a big mistake. What we need more than anything is worship. What we need more than anything is worship. You see, what Asaph lost was a vision of God. Yes, what he saw was true. Yes, he saw what he saw, but that's about it. And that will break anybody. The only way you and I can handle the injustice and the suffering that is happening in our world is by having a fresh glimpse and a vision of God. Is by navigating and managing that suffering by being in the presence of God. Asaph moved away and out of the presence of God and tried to make sense out of everything going on in his life and in his world. And it didn't lead anywhere good. You see, just like worship can get us in a whole lot of trouble, false worship, <laughs> Worship is what gets us out of trouble. True worship. It was false worship. It was worship that got Asaph into trouble. The object of Asaph's worship was not God in the beginning of this psalm. It was the arrogant. It was the wicked. And everything that they had and were in possession of that he coveted. Right? He coveted. He wanted it. And as a result of that, he got into a whole lot of trouble. Asaph here is in the sanctuary now. He's in the place where he's able to worship. He's in the place where he's able to experience the presence of God. He's in the place where God's word is going to be open and he can gain understanding, not from what he sees around him, but from God's word. 
And that's where you and I need to be. And, and therefore, it's worship that's going to get him out of trouble. People often ask me, how do I know when something else is ruling my heart or my life other than God? This is how. Let me ask you this question. Number one, what is it that if you were to snap your fingers today that showed up tomorrow would make you feel like life is now worth living? What is that? Hmm? Can you think of that? Got it? Okay. Even more, number two, let me ask you this question. What is it that against your wishes, if it were taken from you tomorrow, would make you feel like there's no way life could be worth living? Got it? There's your answer. An idol is basically a substitute. Anything that you and I love more than we love Jesus is an idol. And God, because God, God is a jealous God, he wants that place in our life with no rivals. And when we begin to set out to put people or things there in place of God, we cheat God out of the place that he rightfully deserves. You see, there's no escaping us worshiping. We were created as worshipers. Whether we're worshiping the one and true living God or something else is beside the point. We will always worship. There's no neutral place, right? And so if it's not God, it's someone or something else. And the way I can find out is, what is it tomorrow, if it can just show up, right? If I can just get married tomorrow, life will be worth living. If I can just have kids like they have kids, life will be worth. If I can just get into that school, then I feel like life is worth living. If I can just make the kind of money he's making, then man, I tell you, life is worth living. But if you take my job away from me, if something happens to my child, if this house forecloses on me, if Financial aid doesn't come in next semester at this school. I'm done with my life, and I'm done with you, God. You see, then what that means is the object of our worship no longer is God. It's something else in the place of God. And God is saying, look, that's how you can know when something is ruled. And Asaph wouldn't have known it unless what? And until what? He went into the sanctuary of God. You see, God's purpose for your life is not going to be found by you being distracted by someone else's success. Did you hear that? God's purpose for your life is not going to be found by you being distracted by somebody else's success. In other words, stay in your lane because there's no traffic there. All right? If I'm on the freeway driving, this is unhealthy. <laughs> okay? Just like it's crazy to be looking at the next man's lane while I'm driving, so it's crazy to be looking at the next man's life while I'm supposed to be leading a life of my own. There's traffic there because that's not my lane. But there's no traffic here because it's custom made for me. You with me? You with me? And so Asaph here lays this out. And he says, I realize now, until I went into the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. Whose end? The wicked's. The very people that I was tempted and prone to be envious of. It's like, what am I doing? How crazy could I be now that I realize where things are headed? 
What's the point? It's this. Asaph is realizing even though their life may be good for a season here and now, it's not going to end well. And yes, there may be some things about my life that I may not be particularly happy about, but you know what? I know where I'm headed. For the Christian, this present life is the closest you will ever come to hell. And for the non-Christian, this present life is the closest that you will ever come to heaven. And Asaph, at this moment, in the presence of God, is discovering both his end and especially their end. And he says there, verse 18 and following, truly you set them in slippery places. He goes on in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He says, yes, their life looks like it's going on for forever and ever and ever, but, and they're enjoying what they're enjoying forever and ever, but it's like a dream. We all know what dreams are like. When you're in them, it feels like it's forever, right? You, 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 you come up with a, a story of your own. You're the main character in your dream, and you could earn all the money you want. You could marry the person you want. You could have the life you want in your dream. Nobody else is in there but you. And all of a sudden, what happens? <laughs> there comes a point where you wake up. And however long it may have felt when you wake up, you realize it wasn't that long after all. And you have no control over getting back into that dream, even if you wanted to close your eyes. And Asaph is saying, <laughs> I'm looking at them with their cars and flaunting their stuff and showing off on their social media feed and with their lifestyle. But it's, a, it's just like a dream. It's just for a moment. Pretty soon they're about to wake up and it's not going to be it's not going to be good. He goes on and he says, verse 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Get this. I was like a beast toward you. When Asaph says he was like a beast toward you, he's saying, I was like an animal, like a beast. This is poetic language. What he's, what he's pointing out is animals no, have no concept. They have no categories for eternity. Right? They're, they're creatures that live in time, right, right now, and they live instinctively, and they live simply to gratify their initial and immediate urges. That's it. They're not, they don't plan, and they're not, live, they're not thinking of making choices in light of eternity. But what Asap is saying is, I was living like that. I was animal-like. I tuned out eternity. And then tried to make sense out of everything going on. And it wasn't good. Verse 23, nevertheless, I was continually with you. I'm continually with you. You know what he's saying is, you didn't treat me the way my sins deserve. You see, this is a picture of Christianity and the gospel. That, that there is nothing that you could do by way of good that could make God love you any more than he already has. And there's nothing that you could do by way of bad, by having a bad week or embarrassing God, if you will, yesterday that could make God love you less because his love toward you is not based upon how you are toward him. I mean, how is Asaph toward God at the moment? Not good. He just called himself a beast. And yet I am continually with you. You didn't abandon me. I hope somebody is in, 
encouraged by that, that even when we find ourselves unfaithful, God remains faithful. And, and Asaph is pointing this out. He says, you, you hold my right hand. Notice, who holds? Asaph holds his right hand? No, you. God's the one holding my right hand. I know we, we want to say, I held on to God. No, you didn't. God's holding on to us. Had it not been for God holding on to us, let me tell you, as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't be here today. The Bible says that, Paul says in Philippians 1, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, not you who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will bring that good work to completion. And God is showing himself faithful by holding Asaph at a season when he's at his lowest at his lowest point. And he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know what Asaph is saying at this moment? He's saying, look, until and unless God's enough, nothing else will be. Nothing else will be. Asaph is saying, learn the lesson from me. Take it from me. I learned this the hard way. I tried to set out and live and begin to live a life where God was not enough. And I was trying to compensate for what I thought God was skimping on. And it got me nowhere. And now I'm at a place where he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And what is there to be desired upon this earth besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail. He's saying, look, I'll be real. Yes, I fall and I get up and I fall and I get up. But you know what? It's never about me anyways. God's the strength of my heart. God's my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, as far as I'm concerned, you ask me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see how the psalmist is ending? He's ending in a way that he didn't begin. You may be at a place right now where you feel like, oh man, embarrassing. I hope nobody sees me at this low point in my spiritual walk with God. I'm sure Asaph was that same way. But, but I want you to take this to heart. And that is, even though you may be right there, you don't have to remain right there. Even though that may be where you presently find yourself, I want you to be encouraged and know that God's prepared to meet you. God didn't wait for Asaph to get out of his situation. God met him when he was beast-like. He was looking at, at his life and, and, and where happiness is found purely in this terms. And he said, that comparison game robbed me of my joy. And he had to get rid of that in order to bring God into the mix. I want to leave with four takeaways, if you will, for us. Number one, pour out your heart to God. Okay? Just pour out your heart to God. Let me just give you permission right now. God's big enough to handle your burdens. God's big enough to handle your pain. God's big enough to handle your doubt. God's big enough to handle your questions. God's big enough to handle even your anger. All right? Sometimes we're afraid of, of presenting that to him because we think we're going to embarrass him or, or we think that this means that that's the end of our relationship. No. The Bible says, Psalm 62, 8 says, O people of God, 
pour out your hearts before the Lord. I want you to pour out your heart before God because it's only when you do so that you're ever going to get to a place that's healthy in your spiritual life with God. Number two, in your suffering, don't sin. One of the biggest challenges that I've noticed is for those who have especially been sinned against to not sin, all right? Be careful in all of your suffering not to sin. Know how to allow God to help you to process through that, but not to meet sin with sin. Asaph is saying, learn from me. I, I responded to a lot of the sin that I saw around me with sin, and it didn't go good. It didn't go good at all. Number three, renew your relationship with God. Asaph here went into the sanctuary of God. Yes, he, he was in the state that he was, but where did he end up? In God's presence. And what happened there? His relationship with God was renewed. I don't know what this means for you. Maybe you need to begin to take more time throughout your day and throughout your week with less time on social media or on places where you're comparing your life with the next and more time in the presence of God. In the presence of God with your Bible open and allowing God to speak to you, allowing God to give you understanding. Find yourself on your knees in the presence of God because when you do and that relationship is renewed, notice, even though Asaph is saying, whom have I in heaven but you and what is there to be desired upon this earth besides you? We have no reason to believe that his circumstance changed. It's his perspective that changed. You get that? How you see God affects how you live in this world. Okay? And so even though I may not be able to promise you that your circumstances will change like that, if your vision of God changes, how you see God changes, guess what? You'll know how to live in this world. Renew your relationship with God. Okay? It's going to be very, very important for, for you. This is critical because we see this in, in, Asaph's, um, in Asaph's life. Number three, I want you to, to keep in mind, just like in the case of, of Asaph, keep in mind that justice will take place and that God himself, God himself, will show up, and God himself will allow you to see all things made right. And I want to end with that here in a second, with Revelation in chapter 21. The Bible says there in Revelation in chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21 in verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, get this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with man, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death 
shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated and was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Get the big picture is what I'm saying in that takeaway. Get the big picture. God's making all things new. That a whole new order is taking place. That God has already begun to make things new. In fact, I'm going to say right now, if you're tuning in, and let's say you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, that's where it begins. If you want to experience this God making all things new, it begins with yourself. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old order has passed away, and the new has come. What that means is, look, if you are seeking to bank your life in this world's terms, we just saw what that end is. It's going nowhere. And if you're prepared to, to, to meet your God and to experience a life and a relationship with him like you've never known, today's that opportunity for you. I want to com commend Christ to you. And what that means is Jesus is the answer to all of your problems and to the problem especially of your sin and my sin that keeps us apart from this God. By turning away from your life that Jesus had nothing to do with and placing your trust in him alone for your salvation, you can have this life. For those of us who call ourselves Christians and for those of us who belong to God, maybe like in the case of Asaph, we've slipped. We've wandered. We've found ourselves stumbling and we realized that wasn't a good idea. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in, in this message right now. Like Asaph came back to God by coming back to the sanctuary. I want to encourage you. Come back to the presence of God. In the same way that that same worship could have got us into trouble, it's worship of the one true and living God that's going to get us out of trouble. His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And Lord, we recognize that Asaph's story is not foreign to any one of us. We're all aware of how prone we are. As the, the famous hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so, God, I pray right now, would you keep your people? If there's anybody who's at that point of slipping, or maybe that has taken place already, would you give them a fresh vision of yourself? Would you give them a picture of who you are? Would you give them a glimpse into your character? Lord God, would you woo them with your love? The Bible says it's the kindness of God, the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray, speak to their hearts, encourage them. Some of us may feel beast-like at the moment. Some of us may feel like we don't deserve to come into your presence. But I pray, nevertheless, that we do so anyhow. God, meet your people right where they are, but don't leave them there, I pray. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.